0: Hey, thank you so much for joining us for the Big Time Talker podcast. We are on the Blog Talk Radio Network, Apple iTunes, and we're simulcasting with our friends at Headline Books today for their Zoom Into Books series. And my buddy joins us from Southern California, Kevin Miller. He's got a brand new book uh, that we're going to tell you all about uh, that is now available uh, at bookstores everywhere, amazon.com, at headlinebooks.com. But I want to start the conversation, Kevin, with you specifically, because you have such a fascinating way that you came to being an author. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're not the typical guy who, who grew up saying, you know, I'm going to write Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew Mysteries. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a, a Dickens guy. Mm-hmm. you were an Air Force guy. You're a, an IT, a web guy. Mm-hmm. You have this amazing story that led you into writing.
1: Yeah, no, I do. I I never um, saw myself or projected myself to be a writer. I mean, I I do like to write and and part of my uh, background in in web development was that I was a technical writer, but that doesn't translate to being an author as I I learned. Um, Yeah, my story began a few years ago when I learned that my last name really isn't Miller. It's Puchowski, a very Polish name, and there was a family tragedy that happened in our family and we learned our name wasn't what it was. My dad didn't even know. And it just kind of pushed me in that direction. He asked me to write my grandfather's story about a tragedy that happened in 1920. And that's that's kind of how I got pushed in. I started, I wrote the book. I I loved it. It took me three years to write. The first one took me three months to write this last one. And, um, you know, I'm I'm loving this new career. Now, You know, you just sort of, uh,
0: you know, toss it off there. Oh,
1: this is a thing, and I just
0: found out that my last name is not my real last name, and my whole family history is not what I thought it was. But let's peel that onion back a little bit. First of all, how old were you when you learned this, and what were the circumstances behind you learning that your entire family history had been changed?
1: Um, I I was actually probably close to 40 years old, um, late 30s, given my age away now, because it's it's been a, a, a few years um but it it uh, was shocking you know and like i said my my dad didn't even know this my grandfather took this information to his grave he, him and his siblings uh, made a vow and they 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 swore a, a vow of secrecy that they were going to take this to their grave they wouldn't tell you know family to pass it down nothing you know and they buried it and he did a good job of burying it he took it to his grave with him and never spoke of it and then all of a sudden some newspapers turned up at a funeral that uh, talked about uh, a murder. My great-grandfather was murdered in his sleep in, in a little township of Southington, Ohio, near Warren. And um, it just kind of goes from there. The, that book, it just begins with a murder mystery. And I had enough information on newspapers and court documents and letters from family and stuff to piece that together like a detective and put that together. And, uh, and then um, later on, my grandfather and his siblings wound up in a, in an orphanage in 1920 for a while. And, and then it's the, the story just kind of continues from there as they, they try, they, you know, they attempt to escape, he runs away and they're trying to get away from this awful situation. But, um, so that, that's kind of where the story goes, you know? So. If you're just
0: joining us, Kevin Miller is our guest today, and he's got a brand new book, uh, with headline books, and we're talking to him as part of our big time talker podcast uh, brought to you by a Friends at Speaker Match and uh, also with Headline Books, Zoom Into Book series. Uh, I, I'm just amazed that you're almost 40 years old. You're at a family funeral. Uh, this was not your grandfather's funeral, though, where he, he had sort of changed the, the whole family narrative, right? It was another relative?
1: Yeah, it was another relative. And it was actually my uncle who was at the funeral, who actually uh, received the... Um the newspapers from some cousins. And then he, and then turned them, you know, over to, he called us immediately and, and said, Hey, our name's not Miller. And and he held that information for us oh, for a little while and drove us nuts with it. And it's like, I, you know, it's like, what's our name? You know? So he finally, we finally got hold of all the newspapers and stuff. And then I started researching and found a whole lot more uh, newspapers and information. Um, when I took a trip to Warren and just kind of started going through old, uh, you know, documents and, records. So um, it just revealed a, an incredible story. And then we kind of battled with, do we tell the story? I mean, he took this to his grave, you know, and he, he did not want, he wanted to save his family name and that's, that's kind of what it was. But after reading the story, it was so incredible. And and the story is hard to steal because he had such a heart for his family and and, and, and it was just so incredible. I wanted to honor him and, and tell his story. So we decided to go ahead and, and write the book.
0: That book, again, Heart of Steel, available at Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. And lots of people talked about it because it was – that's where the Hardy Boys piece comes in. You really had to learn how to be sort of an amateur sleuth to find out your own life. You mentioned your last name, a very Polish name. Did you know that you had any Polish heritage, or or what did you think – uh, your your people came from. What was the story that was given to you
1: guys? Yeah, the story. Well, my grandfather always said he was German, you know, and because they he um my great grandparents uh in the story were immigrants from Poland, and they were in an area of Poland that was sometimes Germany, sometimes Poland, but they were very Polish, and spoke you know very broken. I actually met my great grandmother um, Stella when I was probably about thirteen, um, and uh, yeah, she was she lived till she was about ninety three, but. But uh, yeah, it was. We just thought we were German. I mean, I knew she was Polish, so I knew there was some Polish in there. But um, Miller, you know, that's that's comes from Euler. It's you know, it's a German name, and uh, it seems like he picked that name probably because it's so common. You know, like a Smith or a Jones or, or a Johnson. You know, Miller's right up there, and probably the top five most common names. So, uh, and an enemy, you know, or. Just
0: wanted to blend in. Um, yeah,
1: he wanted to blend. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and your grandfather, you said there was a a murder uh, of his father,
1: and yeah. mm-hmm. you know
0: that was sort of swept under the rug. And then there was this uh, this runaway into an orphanage for him and his siblings, and he he protected them. You obviously knew your grandfather as an older guy.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. What was he
0: like? What was he like to you as a, as a young man?
1: Oh, you know, I love my grandfather. He was a he was a tough guy. I mean, he was a tough guy with a gentle heart. You know, and I, I never really realized how how gentle his heart was until I was in the Air Force and I, I was uh, doing some training at Wright Patterson in Ohio, and he flew me up for the weekend to visit. And I didn't know he was dying of cancer at the time. You know, and he just there was just something deeper that i i saw as a man that i didn't see as a kid but um but he was all he was good he was had a great sense of humor i mean he he would come out they'd come out from ohio and stay rent an apartment in arizona and stay for several months so that we could visit with them and, and stuff but he was a fisherman uh hunter you know he was an outdoorsman uh he loved to fish and stuff and he and he just he was a handyman that could do everything i mean he wasn't a big man but he was he had these huge hands. He was a strong man, you know, but uh, he, he just knew how to do everything. He built his own cabin, you know, in Ohio. He built from the ground up, you know. He, he was always building something, and he was really good at it. He laid tiles. He laid floor tiles, and he had these big Popeye forearms because, uh, you know, because of it. So, but uh, in, the, in the book, he pulls his tooth with the pliers, and that's that's based on a where oh. He really did that. That's like, I don't know. if Yeah, that takes a real man, I think, to do that or, or you know someone who just isn't right in the head maybe i don't know <laughs> <laughs> so so why do you think uh
0: and this forms the basis of your book Hard to Steal, your first book mm-hmm. why do you think he wanted to keep this whole part of your family's history secret you know why did he not want
1: to put it out there for you guys? oh yeah the scandal scandal he, he, in those days it's, it's you know 1920s and, and on you protected your family you know you didn't throw your family's laundry out for the whole world to see and stuff and he was trying to protect his mother and father and, and siblings and I'm sure you know his future children and grandchildren he was he was trying to save face with the family name so just to, to cover the scandal and the hurt of it I think
0: you know, it's almost counterintuitive to the way that we all live today. when We all live online and uh, you know, people post their dirty laundry all the time on social media. Yeah. And you have, you know, TV shows and, and careers like the Kardashians that have been built by putting it all out there. But I guess you're right. A couple of generations ago, yeah. it was a whole different thing. And this wasn't a small scandal. I mean, this, as mm-hmm. you said, there were newspaper articles. This was a big damn deal. It was a big story. Yeah, it
1: was big. It was huge. Mm-hmm.
0: So, it was huge. Mm-hmm. Heart of Steel, uh, you said it took you three years to
1: write. Yes.
0: And your new book mm-hmm. took you how long to
1: write? It took me about three months. I mean, it was I, I learned in those three years. I learned how to write. You know, I mean, not that I. I mean, I don't proclaim to be up there with the big name authors by any means. I'm learning every day, and I continue to write to just continue to learn. But I learned so much from that experience at the second book plus we were locked down in COVID. And I, what else did I have to do? So um, that one went a lot smoother, and I had my great critique partner, my wife Annette, and she. This sec she loved Heart of Steel, just loved that story. This second story, she's called it her obsession. She loves it so much. White Skies, Black Mingo. She she lived. Um, I, I would give her a couple chapters at a time as I was. She was reading it out as I was writing it. She's like, you have a couple more chapters for me, you know? So. I would write more chapters and then she'd give me her input and, you know, and her feedback. And she's very honest. So, you know, I had to have thick skin on, in certain areas, but she was very helpful and in, in putting, you know, Heart is Still together with me and also helping me uh, with White Skies, Black Mingo, but she loves the story. Um, our good friend, Dreama Denver loved the story. She wrote me a really nice review and uh, told, said it was her favorite book of 2020, which is just humbling for me.
0: And, and lots of people are talking about White Skies, yeah. Black Mingo that way. And and I wonder if, as you look at these two books, your first one, Heart of Steel, and the new one, White Skies, Black Mingo, one took three years to write, the new one, three months. Did Is it because, Kevin, you had this incredible story, life story to tell with the first book, and you had to do all that research that took so long, and you'd learn the craft, and then this new book... You know, there are some some historical notes in there, but it's a work of fiction, so it flowed a little bit better. I mean, I've, I know some folks, uh, Shaley in my office, who's read both books, she mm-hmm. liked the first book. The new one, she just loves as well. So awesome. do you think that has something to do with it, the learning of the craft, but also that you were carried by this incredible story the first time around?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it, it does. Um, yes, all of the above. I mean, the first one took a, a long time because not only was I researching, I was also learning how to write. And i had to rewrite and, and rewrite and edit and re-edit um whereas the second one I was kind of already a oil-tuned machine you know and, and and as you said it's historical fiction so the story kind of tells itself and it, it's it's funny is I, I'm, I think this happens to other authors but sometimes i don't know where the story is going it just unfolds and it goes in a direction and all of a sudden it's like yes this makes total sense for it to go this direction and And sometimes, you know, I'm living the story as I'm writing it, you know, it's kind of like the never ending story, you know, I'm kind of in the world, you know, as I'm writing the story and seeing it, you know, so it just kind of writes itself almost sometimes.
0: I love that that you mentioned, look, you know, it was COVID time too. So I really put my head down and I got something accomplished during this, this really tough time. And what you got accomplished is something that so many people say they they I'm gonna write a book someday. I've got a book in me. Yeah. But you actually did it and you actually did it twice.
1: Mm-hmm. Um what do you think is the roadblock for people in being able to to actually write a book? What's oh, not? finding the time, I think. I think you know, yeah, so many people have stories in them and every family's got a story to write. Every person has a story in there somewhere. But I think just life gets in the way and and time gets in the way. And if you really, really want to do this, you know, today, do it today, sit down today and start, you know, outlining your story or planning your story, you know, whatever style you write in. I think that's the biggest thing is distractions, everyday distractions. Even for me, you get you get in that creative mode and, and all of a sudden distractions start coming in because you're, you've got daily life and you've got kids and wife and family and, and other obligations and stuff so you kind of have to set that time aside and devote it to writing just tell everybody don't bother me for the next couple hours you know but but I think the biggest roadblock is just not sitting down and, and just start you know starting in and, and, and writing putting your story together so
0: I love that you talked about your wife Annette being sort of your first Mm -hmm. reader, your first editor, your, your beta tester. Um, for many people who are creative, it's really, really hard for them to take criticism Mm -hmm. and to learn from that criticism. Yeah. Was it that way for you? Were there times when Annette would come to you, especially in the new book, which is mm-hmm. a fictional book, you know, it's all yes. up here. This is all coming out with, you know, yep. with a, a little historical framing, but it's really close to you. You know, the first yeah. book was historical fact. There were only so many things that you could be critiqued mm-hmm. on because that's how it happened. The new one is all you. So is right. it tough for you to hear, especially from somebody that you're very close to? Yeah. You got to do this differently.
1: So yeah, no, no, no. My, my wife is an excellent critique partner and yeah. And, and yeah, it, it hurt me a few times too. And and we would go round and round and stuff and, you know, and, you know, she would ask me this, and I, but you know, and then we'd have to sit down and just kind of settle down with it. And I say, Oh, I'm just challenging you, honey. That's all. I just want to know why you think the way it is or why you don't like this or that. And, um, but we would come to great conclusions and it would help me so much. I mean, yeah, I would get a little sometimes hurt or it's like, what do you mean? You know, that's, this is great. This part's great here, but she, but she helps me because the, the protagonist in White Skies, Black Mingo is a 12 year old, uh, female Native American of the Haudenosaunee, um nation. She's Mingo. Um, and we kind of follow her life. So there's. And it's a love story. It's a forbidden love story too. So it's nice to have that inside um, look and analysis from a woman, you know. Because as a man, I, you know, I don't know what it's like to be a woman. Completely, I mean, you know, I'm surrounded by all my daughters and stuff like that. I have a good understanding of women, you know, just because they're I'm outnumbered. But um, but she gives me those insights. She gives you know, she's like this. This is what's you know, this is what will appeal to women. This is what will understand you know this is how we think you know so it really gives me a good insight and she helped me through quite a bit of that
0: our guest is kevin miller the new book is white skies black mingo the first book is heart of steel uh if you'd like to pick up white skies black mingo from headline books it's available at headlinebooks.com amazon.com uh bookstores you can order it as well Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that book a little bit. So, sure. so Heart of Steel uh, is the story of your grandfather and this sensational murder that happened, and a cover-up and a mystery in the nineteen twenties. Mm-hmm. When does White Sky's Black Mingo take place?
1: White Sky's Black Mingo is set in the eighteen hundreds. It begins in eighteen fifty-four, just before the Civil War, um, and it follows the life of of uh, my great great grandmother. And, and again, it's a fictional story because there's just not enough information to write a, you know, a historical uh, reality drama, but um, yeah, it takes place during the civil war and, and, and that's part of the, um, you know, antagonists. There's several antagonists in the story. And one of them, of course, is the war that, uh, splits two people apart. My, my great, great grandfather was a uh, union soldier in the civil war as well. And, um, you know it's it's kind of their love story from from my own imagination um, I, I was just in, i was inspired by the fact that a native american woman and an, an irishman um you know would have that kind of love in during a time where it was completely forbidden you know that weren't even allowed to legally marry so that inspired us like wow what a great story of two people that love each other that much you know to to be together, you know? So that, that just kind of got the juices going and, and clicking on the story and, and it just kind of flew from there. But yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of in the, you know, Gone with the Wind era, you know? And um, Did yeah. you
0: know that you had um, ancestors that were Native Americans? Did you know about, uh, I think you said it was your great great grandfather mm-hmm. was a, a Union soldier. Did, did you yeah. know all that before researching Heart of Steel or were these the things that kind of came out in that whole process.
1: I I actually knew that already. I I already knew that my great great grandmother was, uh, was native American. Um, I knew that from my grandmother who, um, you know, I talked about her quite a bit. I I learned a lot of information, you know, through my grandmother, uh, MMA. And, uh, so she, um, you know, revealed a lot. And And my dad talked about her too. And, and about my great great grandfather. He, um, you know, he, like I said, he was a Union soldier. He died, you know, rather young. But uh, so those, that, that information was there and available. There's just a lot of facts and details, historical facts and stuff that just aren't there that I couldn't locate. You know, I,
0: How did you come up with the title, White Skies, Black Mingo, and what does it mean?
1: The White Skies, Black Mingo, um, the White Skies part of it is uh, actually the plantation that, that, that is in the name of the plantation that's in the story. Because there's there's also you know uh, an aspect of of the plantations and slavery and, and all those horrible uh, institutions in, in those days. Black Mingo is a kind of a a little bit of a derogatory term, I think. I mean, the Mingo they would refer to um, the mingo sometimes as Black Mingo or Blue Mingo, which just meant treacherous, because their reputation was they were you know, treacherous, uh, mighty warriors, um, uh, you know, with, with, uh, you know, like the heart of a warrior. Uh, and, and that's kind of why I kind of went, you know, in, in, that direction with that, because Margaret, uh, was, was Mingo. Ming, Ming, the Mingos were part of the Shoni, more commonly known as Iroquois that we know they, they're not, they're not really fond of the name Iroquois because their true name is Haudenosaunee. The the six, six nations it used to be five now they're six but the mingo are kind of independents. you know they're kind of independent uh they're not really a tribe you know they're 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 a members of the the nation and they speak the the iroquois language um you know so they're so that's uh you know where that goes
0: so kevin he- you and I talked about this once before. Um, I grew up in, in southwestern West Virginia, yeah. and there is a Mingo County, West Virginia, and there was a, a big Native American component mm-hmm. to that area in the 1800s um, Yeah, uh, before white settlers came in and, and unfortunately brought smallpox in, and that right. sort of decimated many of those tribes there. Mm. What parts of the country does this story take place?
1: This um, this story starts out in uh, in Ohio, eastern Ohio. Um, that's that's where a lot of the uh, the Mingo tribes and the Mingos were um, often a mix of Seneca and Cayuga. That's two of the two of the nations of the Hodia or Iroquois, and uh, so they 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 flee. The, the the book opens up with them fleeing an epidemic. Uh, with Kateri is her native name with her grandmother who is a shaman and her mother and they're fleeing Ohio and they're headed for Wheeling, Virginia. And it's Wheeling, Virginia because it's before West Virginia became a state. So that's where they're headed. And and then the story, that's where they end up. So mo- the majority of the story is, is right around Wheeling, West Virginia in that area, beautiful West Virginia. And I know that you are far better expert on West Virginia and its heritage than I am, but I, I had to do a lot of reading and research and, and such, but, Right in your backyard, Burke.
0: And your your great grandfather, the Union soldier, where was he from originally?
1: He he was uh, he was stationed in the sixty third uh, regiment, infantry regiment of Pennsylvania. But uh, he, um, I was able to locate all of his battles that he was in, which I was able to integrate into the story. And he, he was at Gettysburg as well. But uh, he was all over Virginia, you know, Pennsylvania, all all kinds of different places. Hick Church. Um, uh,
0: and how did you find, you, you mentioned you found which battles he was in. Yeah. Tell me about the research you did for this book. And, and again, you had to fill in a lot of the gaps, but yeah. how did you find that out? That's fascinating.
1: Yeah, this, this one I actually got, to, I looked up the documents on Ancestry.com. I went back to the Ancestry uh, database and I was able to find him and find a bunch of documents that showed um, exactly what regiment he was in, what battles he fought in. And, you know, so I, so I was able to take that and integrate because I, I wanted to I try to integrate anything that I can find that I know is real or true into the story and make it, you know, fit. And it's a, it's a, this book has a little bit of everything. There is obviously,
0: a, you know, romance. There's this, this yes. union, this forbidden union between the two. There's a lot of action there. There's mm-hmm. a lot of drama. If If somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I hear you have a new book. How do you describe it? Because there's a lot happening here.
1: There is a lot happening here. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's basically, you know, it's a story set in the 1800s that follows the life of a 12 year old, um, Kateri, who is a native American. Um, she's fleeing an epidemic in her uh, home with her grandmother and mother. And it leads to, um, it leads to, uh, Virginia. And, uh, and then, and, and later on, um, like I said, she, she gets involved in the civil war. I mean, she becomes part of a plantation and, and, uh, and then finds herself involved in the civil war. And, uh, this, it's, that's where she meets, uh, my great, great grandfather. And then that's kind of starts the love story. So I don't, uh... the book is white skies, black mingo. I see, I'm gonna put you on the spot
0: here a little, I see him over your shoulder a little bit. I yeah. wonder if, to give people a, a flavor for the book, Could you read a a page or two? Do you have one in front of you there?
1: Yeah, no, I do. I do have one in front of me here. Um,
0: And while you're grabbing that, I want to remind uh, the folks that are joining us today, uh, the book is White Skies, Black Mingo. The author is Kevin Miller, and it's available from Headline Books at headlinebooks.com or amazon.com. It's historical fiction, uh, but if you're a fan of books like Gone with the Wind or uh, you like Civil War dramas, you're going to love this book. Uh, So Kevin... uh, Read a little bit of your new book, White Skies, Black Mingo, for
1: us. Sure, yeah. I'll, I'll kind of read towards the, the beginning of the story here. Um, the, the scene is set up where their uh, Kateri is leaving is fleeing with their grandmother and mother. Uh, they're fleeing Ohio for uh, West Virginia. And they're stopped. They've got a small wooden wagon that's being pulled along by her two um, pet uh, wolves, wolf-shepherd hybrids, Hato and Kaki. And, um, and it's, uh, let's see here. So at this point, Kateri gets out of the wagon. She's waiting for her mother and grandmother, and she's just checking on her, her dogs, her pets. So, cocky. ah, oh, such a good boy. Sit, Hato. We'll be leaving soon. Just a few minutes more. Her corn husk doll slips through her fingers and out of her arms. What's this? Some kind of doll? It has no face. Uh, look, where's the lips? No eyes. Toss it to me. Come on, let me have a look. Here, take a gander at this. Who are these boys? And why did they have to take my doll? Give that back, that's mine. Whoa, she speaks English. Yes, I do. I've been to your schools. Maybe you should learn to speak better English. Now give me my doll. Here, catch, Mingo. Her arms stretch high in the air, but the doll soars over her extended fingers and into the hands of the other boy. The doll flies back and forth just out of reach each time. Their laughing and mocking words are hurtful and cruel. I didn't know Injun's played with dolls. I thought you all were savages like your mutts over there. Why are the whites so cruel to us? I did nothing to them, yet they enjoyed tormenting me. It came out of nowhere, an instinctive reaction perhaps. The sting on her hand raises a welt on the boy's cheek. Give it to me. It belongs to me. A pair of hands slam into her chest and she hits the ground in a heap. Dirt pelts her face and body. Breathing turns to choking. The gritty crunch of sand fills her mouth and brittle husks tear and crunch. The doll bounces off her chest in two separate pieces laying in the dirt beside her. There's your doll, Mingo girl. No, no, the doll's broken. Why? Why be so mean? A soft whistle penetrates the heavy air over her head. Splat. Blood drips from the lips of one of the boys. He yelps and clasps his mouth. His eyes widen, stumbling backward. A single bloody tooth drops into his hand. He shrills and flees and disappears among the wooden buildings along the main road. The other boy glances in the direction of the whistle. A stone pelts the knuckles of his right hand. He grasps his injured hand and cries out. He chases after the other boy, crying, Isaac, wait for me. Who is this boy standing over me now? His face is pleasant, friendly. He looks younger than me. He holds a branch shaped like a V in one hand, a rock in the other, which he allows to drop. His dark, bushy brows raise in unison with his smile. He extends a calloused hand. His grip is strong, but I am taller than him. <laughs> the V-shaped branch now protrudes from a trouser pocket and he retrieves the two halves, halves of the corn husk Here you go, I'm sorry. It looks like it's broken, but hey, you have twins now. He's kind and sort of funny. Huan. His nose crinkles. He slightly cocks his head. What? I don't. Thank you, I meant to say. Oh, you're welcome. He extends his hand towards her. What is he doing? He nods and extends his hand further. Take it. It's a greeting. I'm Charlie. What's your name? I, I am called Kateri in my native language. Margaret Davis is my English name. How old are you, Charlie? He glances towards the ground with a slight but crooked smile. He's embarrassed. My question embarrassed him. I'm 10, but I'll be 11 soon. I am 12 years, Charlie, so I am older than you, she smirks. Well, pleasure to meet you, Margaret. What does Kateri mean? It means one who is pure in spirit, but I do not know if I am worthy of such a name. I'm sorry, but I have to ask this. Why does your doll not have any eyes or nose or mouth even? Is it finished? I mean, I can't see see nothing. How does it eat or smell? It's kind of mean to make a doll go through life like that, isn't it? Uh, No, yes, it is finished. We do not allow ourselves to be concerned with an individual's physical beauty. We are all equal in our beauty and in our spirit. The Cornhusk doll is faceless to reflect that truth. And it is a doll, Charlie. He shrugs, rolling his eyes, chuckling. I see. I guess not having a face would take care of that, huh? wonder if none of us had a face. What would that be like? He doesn't get it. Another dumb boy, just like back home. Patting and brushing her clothing forms a cloud of dust and an urgent need to cough. Kateri, grandmother's voice is stern and an alarming reminder that she should be waiting by in the wagon, certainly not standing here talking to a strange boy. I have to go. Thank you again. I'll stop there. Oh, that's great. White Skies, Black Mingo, the
0: brand new book uh, just released from our guest today, Kevin Miller. Available at headlinebooks.com, amazon.com, bookstores everywhere. Uh, We have a Facebook comment that says, this would make a wonderful
1: movie. Oh, thank you. Yes, I would love to turn this into a movie. Yeah,
0: Thumbs up. Well, your first book actually has been optioned to be made into a movie.
1: It has. It's been optioned by uh, GKG Productions, uh, a good mutual buddy of ours named Kevin Sizemore. When he read the book, he came to me and said, dude, we got to turn this into a movie. So he asked to option the book and, and that's what we're working on right now. We've got the actually the screenplay written by a wonderful screenwriter named Ty De Martino. Good guy, wonderful guy uh, has become a really good friend of mine. And uh, so we've got the screenplay ready and, and Kevin's out there pitching it and seeing if we can get the, the, uh, funding and backing together and we'll make a movie out of that and I'd love to make a movie out of white skies uh, uh, Annette my wife says the same thing she's probably a little prejudiced but she's the same thing she goes those would look so nice on screen good story to put up there
0: you know I uh, I wonder when you were writing this book and we talked about how, how women have been so receptive to it um yeah. but but since you have younger characters in there too um what do you think about it as as a young adult book as well as, uh, you know, for middle schoolers and teens? I would it think I would love it a lot.
1: Yeah, no, I, th- I, think it, I think it fits that. I think it fits the the young adult um, genre too. It could fit right in there. And I think it would be a great kid. I've, I've given a copy to both my daughters, um, anxiously waiting for them to finish reading and letting me know what they think. But yeah, it definitely fits in there. And it's, it's,
0: you know, would you consider doing Zoom uh, uh, presentations to, to schools and libraries? And oh, I'd love
1: to do there? that. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that would be a lot of fun. We'd definitely enjoy that. I think it'd be great. And, and
0: you know, young people I have a 15-year-old son who's very much into mm-hmm. into that whole era of Cowboy oh, Native American culture. So I would think yeah. you know, people would really enjoy that. Mm-hmm. So, all right. You heard it here first. Kevin Miller is up to do. Uh, uh, virtual meetings with schools and libraries, book clubs, etc. Mm-hmm. If you're interested, uh, send an email to the folks at Headline Books at their website, headlinebooks.com. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got a, a main character in this book who's a, a, a healer, which is mm-hmm. something that, that always seems very mystical to those of us right. that are not Native American, and, and you see it depicted in mm-hmm. movies and you read about it in books and. And in your books, you learned that from her grandmother. How did you research that? And what did you learn about the whole healer thing?
1: Oh, gosh. That, see, And a lot of that's so much fun because it's, you know, it's like your son. You're just diving into history and you're diving into culture and tradition and stuff. So, but just researching, um, you know, I, I researched the Seneca tribe and, and again, the Haudenosaunee and their culture, their beliefs, their religion, um, and and the shamans and and, you know, what, their tools that they had, um, their ceremonies. You know, I wanted to be very detailed in on the ceremonies, and and I'm really t- trying to write this story in a way that honors these great people and these great nations. I didn't want to write it in because I'm telling the story in the perspective and the point of view of you know of the young Native American uh, girl. So, yeah, so it took a, a lot of research to kind of figure all that stuff out, but it's fun research. It's so, it's so much fun just to learn, you know, the different tools and the different uh, deities that they, you know, worshipped. And the, the old crooked man is a, their spirits, the lesser spirits that they pray to, then those lesser spirits then pray to the great spirit. And what is the old crooked man? What is that? The old crooked man is a, a, a spirit in the in the woods that the, that the natives believed that could help, the healing process and what they would do is they would make a, a bowl of corn mush and put that next to the um to the ill person to help with that and then they would light tobacco leaves and in the, the aroma of tobacco they had a certain uh, you know uh, traditional ceremony they used they had a, a, a turtle shell rattles that they would rattle and then they had these tr- traditional uh masks that they would wear uh for the shaman and uh perform those, those rituals. So, and then of course they, they were very good at learning, you know, how to use herbs and poisons and, and, you know, all, all the things in nature in a, you know, in a healing as a healer, you know, there's, there's nightshade in there. I, you know, she learns how to, you know, the, the, the dangers and the benefits of using nightshade Um it's something she incorporates all, you know, later on in, in what the is that? What
0: is nightshade?
1: Nightshade is a, a berry. It's uh, actually in the tomato uh, family. It's actually, um, it's a sweet, dark, you know, kind of purple-black berry, but they're deadly poisonous if you eat too many of them. They'll taste really good, but, um, but they're extremely uh, poisonous. But in lesser doses, um, you know, they can use that to, to, for a patient to, you know, do surgery to kind of dope them up a little bit, you know, if it's, if it's the right amount. So you kind of have to know, have a good knowledge of what the right amount is. <laughs> if you're listening or watching, if you have any questions, send them to
0: us. Uh, lots of folks are watching the, the Facebook live feed now, or you can send them to us in our blog talk radio chat room. Kevin Miller, the guest today, the book is White Skies, Black Mingo. The publisher is Headline Books, and it's available at headlinebooks.com or at amazon.com, wherever uh, books are sold. You've spent a lot of, of your lifetime... In the Southwest, which has a large Native American population, yeah. and I wonder what what similarities and what differences you discovered from the Native American folks that you spent time around there in Arizona, as opposed to the folks that are in the Mid Atlantic and, and back east.
1: Yeah, I mean there are differences, um, but there's I think there's more commonalities than there are differences. I mean, really, I mean they all of their uh, religious beliefs and cultures. Uh, seem to have similar aspects to them, you know, they all worship the Great Spirit as, you know, God the Father, like the Christian, you know, God the Father, and, um, but uh, a lot of the traditions, and a lot, and just the people in general, I mean, they're just, they are wonderful people, I mean, as I dive into, you know, history, and looking, looking through their culture and stuff, there they're, they're are wonderful people that, you know, have suffered greatly, you know, over the, the years, and, um, and they're, um, sadly, you know, ignored that, you know, I, I'm hoping that my book will bring more attention to, to these nations and, and more light on, you know, onto them. We released White Skies, Black Mingo in November in honor of Native American Heritage Day, uh, or month rather, excuse me. But, um, but no, it's, it's very intriguing. And I think they're very similar. I mean, in, in Arizona, we have Navajos and Apache, um, you know, Mojave, there's Pima's, there's there's quite a few Indian tribes in, in Arizona. Isn't it uh,
0: interesting, Kevin, that when you and I were uh, were young and, and were growing up around all the, the cowboy shows, the old west shows, and for a whole generation, I guess for a couple of generations, yeah. Native Americans were very much positioned as the bad guys, the right. savages.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: And now uh, you know in your book will help with that. Mm -hmm. we tend to look at the Native American experiences uh, completely different and Mm -hmm. see that really uh, white settlers were very much the aggressors and and Native Mm -hmm. Americans really got the short end of the stick in a a large way. Is that something that that was important to you with the book that you helped to sort of set that record straight a little
1: bit? It was extremely important to me in the book because because to me it's telling the story truthfully. You know, let's tell it truthfully, you know, yeah, the, the white settlers were the invaders. And that, and I had, and there's some interactions in there, even with, uh, even with, you know, Charles and, and with uh, Kateri and stuff. They, you know, there's, there's uh, block, you know, there's kind of uh, obstacles in the way of the relationship, not only the war, but the cultural differences and, and the way they both see things, you know. But yes, yeah, the white man was the invader and they were just protecting their land. Uh, essentially. So it was important for me to bring out the perspective and point of view of the Native Americans through my grandmother's, um, you know, her life and her eyes. Uh, Even
0: today, um, how tough interracial relationships are in many parts Mm -hmm. of the country and the challenges they have to go through. Mm -hmm. Some 150 years ago, it must have seemed completely insurmountable, but love finds a way in your book.
1: Yeah. Love, love finds a way. And it was a forbidden love. And they they would have had to overcome a lot of obstacles, which is what really intrigued me in writing the story. I'm thinking they had to deal with cultural prejudices and racism um, of a Native woman and a, and a white man, you know, being together. Plus, they had to deal with the Civil War, keeping them apart um, and, and splitting them up. So there's a lot there to just grab onto and write about, you know, and, and dive into. And, um, so.
0: For folks that that may be watching or listening to our our conversation before the holidays, lots of folks will listen live, watch live. Some will will catch it afterwards. Let's talk about the fun part of being an author. If they want to get an autographed copy of white skies, black Mingo, how do they do that? Is there a way to make that happen? That'd be a a great Christmas gift, a great birthday gift for a a young person who's interested in native American culture, a civil war buff. Is there a way to get an autographed book from you and secondarily did you ever think, in your wildest days as a young guy in the Air Force, you'd be asked for your autograph?
1: Um, yeah. The, the second question, abso- no, absolutely not. I've been asking my autograph because I've been mistaken for somebody famous. <laughs> <and> obviously, <absolutely, laughs> obviously not. You know, but no, I, I never thought anybody would want my autograph. But uh, but yeah, I've got a I've got a good fifty copies right now of White Skies, Black Mango in my possession. So if you want an autograph copy. Um, just go to my website, you'll find my email. My website is authorkevinmiller.com, authorkevinmiller.com. And on there, just hit the contact page and uh, you'll see my email and you can um, email me and, and request a copy and, and I'll autograph it for you and get it, out, get it sent out to you and we'll go from there. Um, I, I mean, I can, my email is webmilleraz at gmail.com if you can want to remember that, if you can't remember that, just go to my website. Um, and that website address Miller, again is? Authorkevinmiller.com. Authorkevinmiller.com. And as young
0: people are, are studying, you know, world history, American history, and, and they really get into these Civil War stories or stories about the Native American culture, this would be a, a great gift for them. Mm-hmm. Um, Kevin, one of the folks who, who's watching now sent a, a note and wants mm-hmm. to know if you're working on a new book now. And and I'm curious about that too in your creative process. First one took three years, second yep. one took three months. Mm-hmm. It, it's gotta be in many ways like giving birth to a child. I mean, it's a big process. You write the book, then the real work begins. Mm-hmm. Have you started tossing around in your head what the next one's gonna be yet?
1: I've got, yeah, actually I've got one in process and I've got a fourth one that I'm tossing around at the same time. I've got my third book. I'm about a little over halfway through. Um, I I target for the 80 to 90,000 words uh, in the novel. I'm about 47,000 into this next one. This next one, I'm deviating just a little bit from my normal genre of, of historical fiction, historical drama. Um, and it's weird because this, this story came to me while I was asleep and I just started, I was kind of in that sleep state and, and uh, the story starts coming to me. And I'm like, yeah, that's a great, that'd make a great book, you know? And, and I kept asking myself questions in my sleep, you know, but when I woke up, I just started writing stuff down. But the second book is, or the third book is, is going to be a book titled Frozen Visions. Um, and it's in a nutshell, it's a little bit futuristic. It, it, the protagonist in it is a, uh, she's a, a neurosurgeon who works for a cryogenic uh, firm in the near future. And she's working on a project that really helps terminally ill people, um, you know, be, get into a, a cryogenic state with the idea that they'll be, you know, woken up in the future and live, you know, a, a new life. And, you know, maybe there'll be a cure to their, their disease, but there's a lot of gotchas in there because she ends up ill herself and, and you know, has to make a decision whether to fight her own illness or go into the very the very program that she created and it makes it makes for some interesting scenarios so I'll I'll leave it at that right for now and because I want to focus on white skies black mingo and and get people excited about that and then maybe they'll, they'll be anxious for the third book. The fourth book, I think I'm going to go back to, uh, I've got a, a relative that I'm going to research, a, a man named John Hall, who came over on the Mayflower. He was a preacher and he's got such a story. He, I mean, he, so much was taken away from him and so many you know struggles he went through. It's like this guy, he needs a book written about him because he's a pretty incredible character. And I think he's my grandfather times six or seven, somewhere around there.
0: It's interesting, you know. uh, Stephen King writes horror books, and John Grisham writes lawyer books. You're all over the
1: place, though. You got a lot happening. I do. I'm I'm all over the place. I got so many stories in me that just want to come out. And it's funny because my brother says he goes, "It makes sense that you became an author because when we were kids, I was always the one coming up with all the stories and things." As long before the internet, you know, we had to make up our own stuff, you know, then. And uh, we'd play games, and I'd create the scenarios and the background and the story. He goes, "You were always the storyteller." you know, and, and I'd put him to sleep with different stories, making stuff up. So he goes that it just makes sense to him. So, so I'm letting them out now. I'm letting all these stories out and I'm trying to, to write good books with them and, and, and hopefully share them with the world and make people happy reading them.
0: I think that's a, a wonderful goal. And, and let's talk about your writing process a little bit. You mm-hmm. said, you know, it's tough because for most folks, life gets in the right. way. Um, and, and you will sometimes just tell your wife and your kids, look, I, you know, I need a couple hours for myself. Yeah. Do you write better in the morning? Do you write better in the evening? When do you carve that time out? And and do you have a word count that you try to hit or a couple of pages? Or what well, talk to me about the author's process for you?
1: Yeah, my author's process is I actually feel more creative in the evenings at night, later at night, especially when you know everyone's in bed. Then then I know I'm not going to get interrupted because you know they're sleeping. So I can sit and focus and research and do this the stuff I need. So I try to set time aside in the evenings for a few hours. And I, and I try to, yeah, I try to shoot for, you know, a couple thousand, two, 3,000 words. If I can get to 5,000 words, great. I'm doing good. Um, and that's, that's kind of, that's kind of my process, you know, and that, that way I avoid a lot of interruptions. Although I do write during the day, you know, I, when I have time and on the weekends I'll, I'll sit down and or I'll just feel creative, you know, cause I, I really feel like I need to be in that creative mode and in the mood you know, to to sit down and, and then start writing. Um, If I'm not, then I just, I'll walk away. And then, and then once I've written a a bunch, I'll walk away for a week or so and I'll come back and then I'll go start, I'll read it from the beginning. And I kind of edit a lot of authors, I think write the whole story. Then they go back and start editing. You know, I kind of write several chapters and then I walk away and then I go back and I, I read and start editing, you know, those, chapters to make them as good as I can possibly make them and then I move on and I keep doing the same thing.
0: Are so, you a voracious reader too? Do you have favorite authors? Do you like to read yourself? You know
1: I, I've never been a voracious and most of the books I've read are more technical books you know I've, I've got like I said I'm an IT person I have a web you know I'm a web professional web developer so I make my own websites um, but I do like to read and I, I do like um, you know s- s- certain stories and Uh, The note, like, you know, classics like The Notebook um, were good. Um, But Annette is the voracious reader. I, I I have to get rid of boxes and boxes of books because she'll just go through them. That's why she's such a great critique partner, because she is an avid, avid reader. She can't get enough books. So we, we go through a lot of books with her, but, but in the process, I I do read a lot. I mean, I, I, I pick up a book and, and sit down, but, but right now I'm not reading quite as much because I'm too busy wanting to write my own story. You know, I enjoy writing more than I do reading, but I do read just for the educational purpose too, to see how other authors handle certain situations. How, you know, how are they describing a love scene or how are they describing a fight scene or how, you know. And and it it helps me to learn, you know, as well. And I think as an author, you have to read in order to, you know, continue to learn how to write, you know, well.
0: Is there, in this book, the new book, White Skies, Black Mingo, is there a message that you want people to take away from it? Some people uh, who write books say, you know, I've, I've got this, overarching theme that I want to get out there this this message and some folks say look I'm just I want them to turn the page and enjoy the story is there a, a message in there in White Skies Black Media?
1: Yeah there's probably a couple messages in there that 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 are um that I'm trying to get across to the reader and you know some of them in in, in the forbidden love and it's like you know no matter what obstacles you're facing um when you love somebody, you, you, you fight through them, you fight through them and to be with that person. And, and that's part of it. And also her, her personal struggles. I mean, she overcomes tremendous obstacles and the message there is just keep, keep fighting, keep moving forward, never give up, you know, that, that, that's kind of the message there. And then also there's a cultural thing because she ends up on a plantation and she, she, um, has a, a whole new, um, uh, eye opening experience with slavery, you know, and and she actually intermingles and interacts with, um, a family who, who are, you know, were slaves and, and, and that helps. And that's another aspect of the story and stuff that I I wanted to tell truthfully. And I wanted to tell honestly, and I wanted, you know, people to see this side of the story and for her to feel that. and, and and I make a comparison to, you know, the native American and the African-American and how there's a lot of similarities in their lives and their culture you know there's a lot a lot of good uh, things that I can kind of pull together there so
0: everybody that's read it I know loves it it's white skies black mingo it's brand new and uh, maybe there's a movie in the future definitely you need an audiobook you got to tell that story and get it out there in that manner
1: yes definitely definitely want to put it in an, an audiobook mm-hmm.
0: kevin miller is our guest the uh, book is available from headlinebooks.com or if you'd like to get a signed personalized copy, go to authorkevinmiller.com. Hey, Kevin, thanks for spending time with us today. Best of luck with, uh, luck with White Skies Black Mingo.
1: Thank you, sir. Always love it, Burke. Always enjoy talking to you.
0: Well, it's a great read. White Skies Black Mingo from my pal, Kevin Miller. And uh, check it out. Thank you, Headline Books. Thank you, speakermatch.com, for making the Big Time Talker podcast happen. Hope you have a great day. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Bye, everybody.